Hey dreamers, this week our episode is going to be a little bit different. I am going to tell you this story of a young woman from Southern California, but I also want to have a conversation. This young woman who, despite what many people and newspaper articles have to say about her, was a person who did have hopes and dreams for a better, stable, fulfilling life. She was in her final year in high school. She played softball. She was a cheerleader. She was an excellent student who maintained good grades. She had been accepted to Northern Arizona University and was slated to begin in the fall of 2014. She would have been the first person in her family to have ever attended college. She aspired to be an attorney. She was kind. She was beautiful. She was loved. But her final moments in this life were brutal. It was savage. It was bloody. And the monster who did that to her was a wealthy, entitled pile of human garbage. And just looking at his ugly face makes me even more sad and angry that that was the last thing that this poor child had to look at before this monster took her away from this world. And the media did not treat her any better. This is a bonus episode because there is heartbreakingly little out there in the media about this young woman. And I clicked on every single article that populated when I googled her beautiful name. This is the tale of Abriana Shade Parks. I have pretty much told you all that I could find about Abriana Parks in the introduction. I wish there was more, but there just isn't. I couldn't even find an obituary. She didn't even show up in a public records search. What I do want you to know right off the bat is that she is much, much more than what she was portrayed as in the articles that you're going to find online if you Google her name. It is absolutely shameful the way that she has been labeled. When I searched her in podcast directories, I found one podcast that had a 30-minute episode about her. While Abriana was the subject at the center of their podcast episode, and it's called Ending Human Trafficking, and at least one of its hosts is a doctor, Dr. Sandra Morgan, and according to her bio, she is the director of the Global Center for Women and Justice, an organization that equips students to address the global status of women and vulnerable populations through collaborative and restorative justice principles. While their episode on Abriana was about and inspired by her and the numerous ways that she had been victimized, the episode's primary focus was to highlight the importance of labels. The manner in which we address victims, particularly victims under the age of 18, in the media and in reporting on stories such as hers. Obviously, the hosts of this podcast have dedicated their lives to issues such as these, and what they had to say was valuable and enlightening. And even though you may have heard these things over and over again, because I know we all listen to crime podcasts. I don't think it can be reiterated enough the importance of treating young women 
girls, really, children, particularly vulnerable girls and women, and even more so specifically women of color. It's important to treat them with the dignity and respect that they deserve, which they quite possibly lacked through much of their lives. So I'm going to go into the points brought up in their podcast regarding the labels that we place on victims when we talk about them, their lives, and what happened to them. And I did say that Aubriana was victimized numerous times. She was the victim of a convicted child sex trafficker. The media calls him a pimp. She was the victim of her killer. And then she was victimized by the media who referred to Aubriana as a prostitute and a hooker. And as long as those news stories about Aubriana remain on the internet labeling her as such, she will continue to be victimized over and over again every single time someone clicks on a story about her. Those labels are meant to evoke a certain response from the general public in order to grab a reader's attention. But not only are they harmful, they misrepresent Aubriana because they're absolutely false. If any of those news outlets had a shred of integrity, they would go through and scrub those misleading labels from their stories and refer to Aubriana as what she really was, a victim of child sexual abuse and exploitation. While we can be fairly certain that the word prostitute will never be fully eradicated from news articles, I would say that in my opinion, there is no such thing as a prostitute under the age of 18. Any young woman, both young men and young women really, for whatever reasons, when they are involved in sex work, they are a victim of child sexual abuse and exploitation, period. Whether they're doing it on their own or if they're doing it by way of a sex trafficker, it makes no difference. They are victims. And the men who go out and look for these young victims to exploit for sex, they're often referred to as Johns in the media and in law enforcement. We also need to call them by what they are. They are child sex abusers and sex purchasers. That is what the media has historically done in these situations. They have called victims prostitutes and or male prostitutes, while the sex abuser gets off with being generically referred to as a John. That's the message that's being sent to the public. By giving these people erroneous labels, who comes out the other side of this looking like a criminal? The one being labeled a prostitute or the one being labeled as a John? Unfortunately, this is exactly what was and continues to happen to Aubriana. She was not a prostitute. She was not a hooker. It is a law that anyone under the age of 18 that is involved in sex work, at least in California, whether it be on their own or if they've been coerced and threatened into it, they are not treated by the justice system as a criminal. That is why labeling minors as prostitutes is harmful because the word in and of itself immediately has us assuming that they are perpetrating crimes. Judgments are passed, that these girls are criminals, that they're probably drug addicts, that they have low moral standards, and it just paints an overall negative portrait of children. So 
now they are no longer treated by the system as criminals. And I will get more into that in a little bit and how this pertains to Abriana. I do know that Abriana was a daughter and a granddaughter, a sister and a friend. I don't know if she was a niece or an auntie or a cousin. She may very well have been. I just was unable to find out any of that information. But I do know what Abriana will never be. She will never be a high school graduate. Since she was brutally murdered during her senior year, perhaps her family was given an honorary diploma. She will never be a college student. She will never be a wife. She will never be a mother. She will never have the career that she dreamed of. Abriana was robbed of all of that by a greedy, heartless, selfish, self-absorbed killer. Because of him, Abriana will never have the chance to experience and realize any of the dreams and aspirations that she had. And her family will never have the chance to feel the joy and pride of all the milestones and accomplishments that she would have made had she not crossed paths with her murderer. And I'm going to say Abriana's name as many times as I can in this episode because I think her name is really pretty and she deserves to have her name heard and the crimes perpetrated against her need to be attributed to the real criminals in the story. Abriana was from Gardena, California, and its crime rate is higher than 72% of the cities in California. But it's not a terrible place to live. However, it's kind of like most cities in Southern California. It's sort of a checkerboard of nice and not so nice areas. There are a couple of casinos in that city that have been there for as long as I can remember. When I was young, my parents used to gamble there until casinos started popping up in cities closer to where we lived. And sadly, like I've said already, there is not very much out there about who Abriana was in life. And I think it's because nobody reporting on the news ever really took the time to ask. Sometimes when I do a story for this podcast, I find huge articles and fascinating stories about victims of crime, and oftentimes stories on the perpetrators of crimes in publications such as Rolling Stone or Vanity Fair or People magazine. Really lengthy, in-depth investigative pieces, sometimes even award-winning articles. The journalists do months and months of research. They interview as many people as they can involved in the case, and they weave together the full narrative of a person's life, and we, the reader, become intimately invested and engrossed by these articles. But Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, or even People Magazine never sought out Abriana's family to do a spread on her life and her tragic death. And in the articles that I did read, nobody really asked the question. Who was Abriana? Tell us what she was like as a child. Well, technically, she was still a child. But tell us what she enjoyed doing. What was her role in the family dynamic? Tell us about the things that she loved and the places that she enjoyed. 
anything of the sort. And when it comes to the criminals that we read about, even though these are garbage people, even in this case, the perpetrators were so pathetically mediocre and unremarkable, they weren't even worth the time. Not that they deserved any media attention, but sometimes the media does that. The perpetrators are sensationalized for one reason or another, like serial killers, Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, John Wayne Gacy. Certain killers gain notoriety solely based on their looks, like family annihilator Chris Watts, or others like Jody Arias or Casey Anthony. The media are attracted to these people and the public are like sheep. And I'm guilty of it too. I watch all the big cases and the equally tragic but underreported stories tend to slip past me sometimes. And I found Aubriana by mistake, actually. I was searching for a killer with the last name of Shin, S-H-I-N. It's a story that has been featured on 2020, and there is a dedicated podcast about that case, too. But by chance, I found this story, where one of the criminal defendants in this case also had the last name of Shin. So I shelved the other story for now and decided to tell you, listening, as much as I could about Aubriana Sade. Most of the things I read that quoted Aubriana's family, it was mostly her mother defending her daughter, repeatedly saying she was not a prostitute. That is not what we instilled in her. And that was about the gist of it. There was not a single news article on Aubriana that would be enough for me to fill five minutes of airtime here. So it's going to be a lot of my own thoughts and my own opinions and the things that were highlighted in the podcast episode of Ending Human Trafficking. And sadly, all we know about Aubriana, I've already told you. I wish there was more, but there just isn't. When I searched her image, there were only three pictures of her, and I will share those with you on social media when this episode is ready. So with that, I'm going to try to piece together this story as best I can based on the few details that are available out there. Maybe part of this has to do with the fact that Aubriana was a minor at the time, but her name is out there now. Anyway, at some point, Aubriana was trafficked into sex work by a then 27-year-old man named Marsalis Joseph Smith. This man had apparently spotted a group of girls hanging out in Gardena when they were approached by Marcellus Smith. I've also heard a report that Aubriana met Marcellus Smith in a chat room online, so what I'm thinking is that maybe they met in person, and after they met, this man proceeded to groom her online. Whatever he said to her, whatever he did, he was somehow able to at least talk Aubriana into going along with him. If any of the other girls that she was with that day on the day Smith approached them is unclear. There were promises of lots of money, clothing, anything that she wanted or needed. But eventually, those promises turned to threats. He would do things like make threats against Aubriana's loved ones. When she would be at his apartment, he would remove all of her clothing so that she would be unable to just walk out and leave. 
these sex traffickers, these abusers, they tend to have a psychological hold on these young girls. They just become too afraid to leave. And just like that, Aubriana was lured and trapped into the world of sex work. She was given an alias, Keisha Clark, along with a fake ID to match. Aubriana's mother, Mantonette McKinney, was unaware of what Aubriana had been lured into, nor had she ever known that she was going by a different name. But there did come a time when she did discover the fake ID in the name of Keisha Clark, and that's when she realized something was going on with her daughter. When all of that happened is unclear, but I do believe that Aubriana was involved in this for at least seven months before the story that I'm telling you here today took place in February of 2014. There had come a time when Aubriana was connected by her trafficker to a sex purchaser named Larry Su Shin, a Korean-American man who was 35 years old at the time. He lived in an upscale neighborhood with his parents in the city of Yorba Linda, California, and he worked for the family business. They owned those random ATM machines that you find in various places like convenience stores or small markets or whatnot. Shin's primary role was to replenish these machines with cash. So he often drove around with a lot of money. I guess he lived a moderately comfortable life, but it mostly sounds like he was fortunate enough to have two hardworking immigrant parents to leech off of and to live with way too long into adulthood. I mean, there isn't anything wrong with that, I suppose, but it seems like by the age of 35, most people are married, possibly starting families of their own. But I guess since he's working for the family business and if he gets along well enough with his parents to stay living there, why not? It does save money, it's cost effective, and overall, it's just easy. This is only my personal opinion and speculation. But I don't think Shin was there living with mommy and daddy voluntarily, necessarily. In the beginning, I told you that this man is a piece of human garbage. And he is, in every sense of the word. And I will only say these disparaging things about him because of the things that he would eventually go on to do. But prior to that, it doesn't seem like this guy had a whole lot going on for himself, with the exception of having a lot of money. And you can go online and take one look at his mugshot if you want to. And if you're like me, you're probably going to jump to the conclusion that it's pretty easy to see that the only way this guy was ever going to see any kind of female companionship is if he paid for it. There is someone out there for everybody. But because this man is garbage, I feel at liberty to insult him in every which way that I can think of. He is nothing more than a 35-year-old frumpy goober that lives at home with his parents and has to resort to paying for sex if he's ever going to get any. And this is how he became acquainted with Aubriana. About seven months earlier, Aubriana connected with Shin, who paid her trafficker to sexually abuse her on a regular basis for a relatively short period of time. Shin knew her by her alias, Keisha Clark. In fact, in all of the reporting on this, 
she was referred to as Shin's girlfriend. I don't know if Shin actually considered her to be his girlfriend or if that's merely what he told authorities in order to not incriminate himself as a sex purchaser. And I say sex purchaser because I don't even know if Shin knew that Abriana was only 17. If he knew, then he would be committing child sexual abuse. But I just don't know if he was aware that she was underaged. I know in the eyes of the law, it wouldn't matter if he knew or not. I'm just pointing out that he may have been unaware since she didn't tell him what her real name was either. Why would she tell her real age? Would he have been scared off if she revealed her real age? Highly doubtful. Either way, Shin referred to Abriana as his girlfriend. For me, I've insinuated that he frequently sought Abriana out, but he may have just labeled her as his girlfriend to law enforcement. It just isn't clear. Abriana's trafficker would drive her to meet up with Shin, and she would communicate with her trafficker to either check in with or to be picked back up. According to court documents, Shin visited a website where he could look for an escort, and this is where he found Abriana. And this is how he first got in touch with her. The first time they met was June 10th, 2013. And in the beginning, they would meet up at a motel. Of course, Smith would drive Abriana to the location, wait for her, and drive her back. Eventually, Shin began taking her to his home. It was after their very first meeting that Shin claimed that he was missing $12,000 in cash from his ATM business. He claimed to have suspected it was Abriana, but whether or not she did it, I don't know for sure. Shin said the money was missing and he ultimately filed a police report. Now, I don't know if Shin just wanted to give Abriana the benefit of the doubt or if he wanted to give her another chance to see if she'd do it again, but he did seek her out for another visit. I mean, I guess he could have convinced himself that someone else took the money or something because losing $12,000 did not deter him from wanting to see Abriana again. And from there, he began meeting up with her on a regular basis. However, it was only nine days after their first meeting on June 19th, 2013, that Shin noticed an additional $9,000 in cash was missing. But also missing this time around was his wallet, which contained all of his credit cards and his driver's license. He again reported this second theft to police, and I believe from there he stopped seeing Abriana. The following month, sometime in July of 2013, according to Shin, he sent Abriana a text in an attempt to retrieve his driver's license, but he was unable to do so. I don't know if she just ghosted him or if she refused to meet up with him again. And honestly, if I had to guess, she or her trafficker probably threw away his wallet and identification once they got everything out of it that they wanted. From there, Shin made no further attempts to contact Aubriana until February of 2014. So it was about six months before he reached out to her again. In the meantime, Abriana was still being victimized by her sex trafficker when the law finally caught up with her. In a sting set up in the city of Santa Ana, California, which is several miles south of Yorba Linda, 
She was arrested along with two other girls and Marcella Smith. This arrest occurred on January 24, 2014. Now this time, when the news was reporting on the story, they did keep Aubriana's name out of the media and she was referred to as a sex trafficking victim. This would eventually be affirmed by the courts when Marcella Smith was convicted of sex trafficking and sentenced to five years in state prison. Now, per the new laws that had been enacted not too long before Albriana was arrested, she was not to be prosecuted for anything because she was not a criminal. She was a victim. So Child Protective Services were contacted and Aubriana was placed into a group home in Huntington Beach, California. Now, Aubriana's family had no idea where she was. So it was sometime very shortly after she was taken into custody that they reported her missing. Unfortunately, Aubriana did not reach out to her family when she found herself in trouble, most likely because she didn't want her family becoming involved into what she'd been lured into. And it's not necessarily because she didn't want them to know about it, but it was probably out of fear. Fear of the threats that had been made against her and her family if she tried to leave or if she told anyone about it. Men like Marcella Smith instill this kind of fear into these young girls. And it's really sad because you know Aubriana has to know that her family is worried about her, but she can't tell them what has happened or where she's at. And I don't know if that missing persons report that was filed had ever been connected with Child Protective Services either. I don't know if Aubriana was booked or even identified because she wasn't arrested or charged with any crimes. And she may have just given her fake name and that connection of the missing persons report would have never been made. Aubriana only stayed at the group home for a little more than a week when she walked out. Her case manager and the group home staff begged her to stay. But it seems that Aubriana had so much fear instilled in her that she felt like she had no choice but to leave. And the group home cannot stop anyone from leaving. They can't hold her against her will. So she is free to walk out at any time, and that is what she opted to do. It has not been made clear as to whether or not Aubriana was aware that Marcella Smith was still in custody when she left the group home or not, but as soon as she discovered Smith was no longer around, she got back into that chat room where she met a man named RJ Crew, and I guess they agreed to get into the same type of working relationship that she had with Smith, and Crew would end up being the one to drive Aubriana when she was contacted by any potential sex purchaser through the escort website that she was located on. I do believe that RJ Crew and Marcella Smith were acquainted and into the same type of sex trafficking business. And so it would be the very next day after leaving that group home that Aubriana was contacted by Larry Shin through that website. But this time he used an alias, so she would not recognize that it was him. According to Shin, on February 3rd, 2014, he had been using a lot of drugs, and while he was high, he was looking at the escort website when he saw that Aubriana was still being advertised on there by her trafficker. 
Because she was no longer communicating with him, Shin made contact with her using an alias and they were set to meet up about a mile away or so from where Shin actually lived in Yorba Linda. Now Shin claimed that he contacted Abriana because even though she had stolen $21,000 from him along with his wallet, he still insisted that he liked her a lot and he wanted to try and save her from this life of sex work that she had found herself in. But we all know that that is not the truth. When Shin contacted the escort service, he said that he was looking for someone to spend a week with him at his house while his wife was out of town, and he would pay $3,000 for those services. RJ Crew, Abriana's new sex trafficker, took her to Yorba Linda, and I've wondered if she even made the connection to this area being the same area where Shin was from, but I don't know. And even if she had made the connection, maybe she really didn't care. If they knew it was Shin, maybe Abriana figured she would be able to steal more money from him. She had gotten away with it twice, and the guy was still wanting to see her, so he must not know or even care. Unfortunately, this wasn't the case. Because $21,000 is something that Shin just wasn't going to forget. No way. So RJ Crew dropped Abriana off on the evening of February 3rd in that neighborhood in Yorba Linda. He then drove a short distance away and parked his car and waited for Abriana to call him to confirm that she made contact with the man that she was supposed to meet there. Abriana had called his phone at 3.40 in the morning, but Crew missed that call. So he eventually decided to head back to the location where she had been dropped off. As he drove up, Crew did notice a short, heavy-set man wearing a dark, athletic sweatsuit of some sort, quickly walking away up the street. Crew continued to slowly drive up the street too, which is when he spotted Aubriana's body near a grassy green belt. Did RJ Crew stop and get out of his car and render aid to Aubriana? Nope. Did he use a cell phone to dial 911 to get help for her? Nope. Did he do anything at all that would have possibly helped save Abriana's life? Nope. He left. He left to save his own skin because he knew he was out there at those early morning hours engaging in illegal activities, so he booked it. He had no business being there in Yorba Linda. Therefore, he left Abriana laying there by herself. This makes RJ Crew piece of human garbage number three in our story. Marcella Smith is human garbage number two, and Larry Shin is human garbage number one. A cyclist passing by at approximately 5.30 in the morning spotted Abriana's lifeless body and called 911. When law enforcement arrived, and taped off the area, they discovered, along with Abriana, a small silver knife, a box cutter, and a knife sheath. I know for a fact that the box cutter belonged to Abriana. It was an item she carried for protection, but in this case, she never had the chance to use it. In all, Abriana suffered a total of 39 stabbing and cutting wounds many of them on her arms and hands in an attempt to defend herself. 
Her cause of death was severe blood loss. Aubriana Sade was only 17 years old. Meanwhile, piece of human garbage number one, Larry Shin, this idiot managed to cut himself while murdering Aubriana, so he took himself to Corona Regional Hospital in order to treat the numerous cuts and lacerations that he suffered, mostly on his left hand. He had one cut on his right index finger. It's a good thing that guys like Shin are dejectedly stupid, thinking he could go over to a hospital like a big whiny-ass baby boo-hooing about some cuts on his hands, thinking that he could tell very highly educated doctors some ludicrous story about how he sustained those injuries, as if the doctor had never seen slice wounds on the hands of a person who injured themselves while stabbing another human being. It really is a good thing that these criminals are that stupid because they, without fail, think that they will be able to have a good grip on the knife. I don't know why. And every time they slide their hand down across the blade. Every time. So the attending doctor was like, who'd you stab? I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. He probably said something along the lines of how, pray tell, did you sustain these highly suspicious looking cut wounds to your hands? And Shin explained that he fell onto a knife. Now this dumbass has numerous cuts on one hand and a cut to the other hand. So how many times did he fall on the knife in order to sustain more than just one cut? Did he get up and fall again and get up and fall again and again and again? So. Not only is this guy stupid, he's a stupid klutz. Okay, needless to say, the doctor certainly did not believe this absurd explanation and instructed the hospital staff to contact law enforcement, and they showed up to the hospital to speak with Shin. From his pockets, police recovered the key fob to his car and a cell phone battery. They obtained a warrant to search Shin's vehicle where they found a knife under the driver's seat and the phone to which the battery belonged tucked into the center console. They put the battery into the phone and were able to power it on. That cell phone belonged to Aubriana. Shin was immediately arrested at the hospital. When evidence was collected and eventually processed, it further implicated Shin as being responsible for Aubriana's murder. Bloodstains from the scene had been all swabbed and testing revealed two DNA profiles, one belonging to Aubriana and the other belonging to Shin. His DNA was found on the knife sheath discovered at the scene. Blood from the handle of the knife was a mixture of both of their DNAs, with Shin's being the major contributor and Aubriana's being the minor. Larry Shin went on trial for Aubriana's murder in 2017. Because he was denying that he was the killer, and a component of his defense in part involved some level of self-defense, it was going to be in his best interest to take the stand and attempt to explain himself. And boy, did he come up with a story that conveniently explains away every single piece of damning evidence against him. And it is a stupid story. According to Shin, it was not he who murdered Aubriana. 
It was the man who drove her to the meeting location, R.J. Crew. He testified that after Abriana sent him a text that she was on her way, Shin claims that he became concerned that she was going to show up with what he called her pimp. We call him a sex trafficker, but you know, this asshole is going to portray Abriana as negatively as he possibly could while on the stand. I am certain he was arrogant enough to think that just because he was Korean and Abriana is black, that a jury of his peers would just simply believe him by default. So he said he was afraid that she would show up with a pimp and he feared for his safety. Once he saw their vehicle pull up and park a little ways away from where he was parked, he decided to drive away, park his vehicle around the corner, and then return to the scene on foot. Now, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever because if Shin was in fear for his safety, then the safest thing to do would be to remain in his vehicle, not go around the corner and park it and walk back to the scene. What I believe he actually did was he initially parked his car around the corner so Abriana would not see it and recognize it as his right away because he had given her a fake name. If she had known it was him, Shin would have worried that Abriana would leave and he wouldn't be able to do what he was planning on doing. And we all know that he was there to exact revenge for the money that he claims she stole from him. Shin testified that he was so worried for his own personal safety that he carried a sheathed knife hidden up his sleeve. Then, when he was just about a few feet away from Abriana, he was suddenly hit from behind by the man that she was with and shoved down onto the ground. This assailant began hitting him and trying to go through his pockets. During the struggle, the knife he had with him fell out of his sleeve and onto the ground. Shin said that Abriana began screaming, so the male assailant told her to stop screaming, but she refused. Because when you're attempting to rob someone and you're doing nothing but standing there watching two men struggle, the natural thing to do while you're in the process of committing a robbery is to start screaming in order to draw attention to yourselves committing the crime to make sure you wake up all of the neighbors so that they can peer out their windows to witness the crime being committed. And then they're going to call 911 for emergency services in order for law enforcement to arrive at the scene so they may place you in custody for said crime being committed. It makes perfect sense for Abriana to start screaming while these men are fighting, right? Right. I'm fairly certain that if this was a fist fight between Larry Shin and RJ Crew, or Larry Shin and anybody for that matter, that Shin would certainly be on the losing end of that. Just my opinion based on the fact that Shin is a coward, on top of being a pudgy little piece of human garbage. So according to Shin's testimony, Abriana and the man, they began fighting amongst themselves because that makes perfect sense also, right? The plan is to rob Larry Shin, but oh no, they suddenly decided to turn on each other. Okay. And then... Shin said that somehow Abriana ended up on top of him on the ground while still fighting with the male assailant. So being the ninja that Shin obviously isn't, he claimed that he Bruce lead his way out from under the two of them who were still embroiled in a fight. 
Then Shin managed to get to his feet, and that's when he noticed a cut to his right index finger. So apparently in this melee, somebody had gotten a hold of the knife that Shin brought with him. Remember, he said that it had fallen onto the ground. And someone was apparently wielding the knife during the time that these three individuals with Aubriana sandwiched between human garbage number one on the ground and piece of human garbage number three on top of her. And Shin sustained the small cut on his finger while 39 stabbing and cutting wounds were being delivered to Aubriana by this male assailant. Because when RJ Crew teamed up with Aubriana to rob Larry Shin, the logical thing for Crew to do is to start stabbing his crime partner, right? And then allow Shin to make off with the cut to his hand. Whatever, but okay, that's what Shin is claiming from the witness stand. So after Shin ninjaed his way out from under the two robbers who have now apparently turned on each other, Shin happened to take the time to notice that there was a cell phone laying on the ground. So Shin thinks to himself, oh my, that must be my cell phone. I'd better pick it up and place it safely back into my pocket. Because when there is a life and death knife fight going on in the foreground, Shin must be thinking, I have to concern myself with the location of my cell phone because my personal safety is secondary to losing my phone. Even though I am claiming to be so worried about my personal safety, yet there really is nothing I did at this point that is indicative of that. So Shin casually picked up his phone or what he says he thought was his phone and put it into his pocket. Shin next testified that after he recovered the cell phone, he began walking away from the scene of the fight because that's what people do when there is a knife fight going on. They casually stroll away like la-di-da, nice breezy moonlit walk, enjoying the cool air and gazing at the stars. Yeah, that's totally how I would leave a dangerous life or death situation. All mellow and easygoing, happy-go-skippy as he gets back to his car. Just your average night hanging out with sex traffickers who apparently attack and murder the young girls that they've trafficked because that's totally a thing. Then shit, I mean Shin, said about five minutes later, so... He was hanging out, chilling, doing whatever, checking out the well-manicured lawns in the neighborhood, maybe. Yeah, he said he stood around for five minutes doing I don't know what. But suddenly, Shin said he collapsed to the ground. What did he collapse from? Maybe it was the massive blood loss from the cut on his right index finger, perhaps. So, Shin dramatically collapses to the ground and then the male assailant noticed that Shin had fallen. Therefore, he halted his knife attack on Aubriana and decided, hey, maybe I'll attack the guy that we intended to attack in the first place rather than attacking the girl that I came here with. So he goes over to Shin, who is conveniently collapsed to the ground, and he grabbed Shin by the head and placed the blade of the knife up to his neck. Again, in defending himself, Shin said he took hold of the knife with his left hand in an attempt to escape from the clutches of the male assailant. 
Never mind the fact that he had five minutes while the assailant was supposedly attacking Aubriana to escape to his car and to get away. No, he didn't do that because he was so weakened by this massive paper cut on his right index finger. It was such a massive wound, he was unable to make it to his car to safety. So Shin testified that he grabbed the knife with his left hand by the blade, and that is when the assailant surrendered the knife. And suddenly, Shin had the upper hand, having control of the weapon, and that's when he barely made it out of there with his life. Shin headed to his car, he drove away and went home. At some point after Shin arrived at home, the cell phone in his pocket, he said, started ringing. The one that he noticed was on the ground, thinking that it was his, and he picked it up and had pocketed it. Well, as he attempted to answer this phone, it accidentally slipped from his hand and dropped. The battery popped out of the phone when it hit the ground, so he picked up both the phone and its battery and put both items back in his pocket. While at home, Shin was continuing to bleed profusely from the wounds to his left hand, so he decided to take himself to the emergency room. But he did not go to an emergency room that was only five minutes away from his house in Yorba Linda. He drove to an emergency room that was almost 20 miles or 32 kilometers away in the city of Corona, California. When Shin got back into his car, he noticed that the knife was still sitting on the passenger seat, so he said he hid it under the driver's seat and headed to the hospital. When he arrived as he was getting out of his car, the cell phone fell out of his pocket and the battery stayed in his pocket. But remember, at no time did Shin ever return to his vehicle once he got to the hospital. As soon as the attending doctor became suspicious of the cuts on his hands, he notified law enforcement and Shin was taken into custody. So here he is claiming that the phone fell out of his pocket that means it would have either fallen to the left side or the right side of the driver's seat, possibly falling down onto the floorboard. Law enforcement, when they searched Shin's vehicle, they found the cell phone in his center console, contradicting the story that the phone had slipped out of his pocket when he was getting out of the car. Shin also testified that the reason why he told the doctor about falling on the knife at home is because he didn't want to discuss the activities that he was involved in with what he described to the court as prostitute-related things. Shin denied that it was he who stabbed Aubriana, insisting that it was the man who drove her to their meeting place. He denied being angry with Aubriana over the $21,000 she had allegedly stolen from him, explaining to the court that it was money he would have spent on her anyway if their loving relationship had continued, going so far as to say he even promised to buy her a car. There is one more thing that I want to point out. The Orange County Register reported on this case as the trial was going on. And in one article, on the day that Shin's mother testified on his behalf, she gave a completely different story about how Shin cut his hand, which directly contradicted the story Shin gave when he took the witness stand. She said that her son, while walking in or out of his bedroom, accidentally slammed his hand into one of the bedposts, and he got so angry that he took the knife that he had in his hand and began slashing and stabbing the post. 
Not only did Shin's mother's testimony contradict his own testimony, the investigation revealed that there was no damage or slash marks on any of the bedposts in Shin's bedroom. So I wondered why the defense would so carelessly put on a witness that would contradict the testimony of the defendant. And I figured that there must have been a break in the communication between all the parties involved. What I think happened is when Shin arrived at home after murdering Abriana, remember he lived with his parents, he needed to explain where the injuries on his hands came from. Of course, he couldn't tell his parents the truth that he stabbed to death an underage girl who he had previously paid to sexually abuse, that she had stolen money from him allegedly, and that he murdered her in retaliation for those thefts. So the story that he came up with is the one his mother testified to in court. After he made up this lie that he told to his mother, he went to the hospital to have his wounds treated, where he was subsequently taken into custody. And the story he told his mother that morning was the one that she continued to believe because he never had a chance to amend what he had said to her as he needed to change his story in order for it to fit the evidence that law enforcement had against him. And no surprise, the jury did not believe Shin's fantastical tale of what happened between him and Aubriana the night that he murdered her, and they found him guilty of first-degree murder with the special circumstance of lying in wait. Shin was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Today, Shin is 42 years old and is being housed at the Aveno State Prison in Aveno, California where he will remain for the remainder of his stupid, ugly, worthless, pudgy, natural life. Thank goodness. When Marcellus Smith was convicted of sex trafficking, the media reported on this correctly and identified Aubriana not by name because she was a minor, but she was identified as a victim of sex trafficking, which was correct. But when Larry Shin murdered Aubriana, she was repeatedly referred to as a prostitute and a hooker. Yet her status as a trafficking victim had not changed at all. She was still underaged, and it doesn't matter if she was forced or not, if she was coerced or not. It does not matter at all if she connected with RJ Crew with the intentions of meeting up with a sex purchaser and that she was doing it on her own volition. Minors cannot be held accountable for any of that and she would have never been charged with any crimes. When Aubriana was labeled as a prostitute by the media when she was murdered, it gives the reader the impression that she is the perpetrator and that she is the one doing something illegal when she absolutely is not. She was the victim. She was a victim of Marcella Smith. She was a victim of RJ Crew. She was a victim of Larry Shin. And she was and is a victim of the media. As long as these stories live on, on the internet, Aubriana will continue to be victimized until those news outlets change the language in their articles and the labels that they put on this child who was murdered. While it is a welcome change that children who are taken into custody in the kind of sting that Aubriana was caught up in, that they are not treated as criminals but rather as victims, there is still much that needs to be done. 
Aubriana was 17 years old. She was still a child, so when she was taken into custody just 11 days before she was murdered, she was treated as a victim. Child Protective Services were contacted from there. She was placed in a group home. She didn't make the decision to contact her family. Her trafficker was still in jail, but the fear that he most likely instilled in her was very real, and she decided to leave the group home the day before she was murdered. Aubriana did quickly connect with RJ Crew online. RJ Crew and Marcella Smith were friends, or at the very least, they were acquainted with one another. So even though Smith was in jail at the time of Aubriana's murder, he still had the connections on the outside who Aubriana could have been afraid of. I believe that she did not contact her family because she feared for their safety. She was most likely doing what she was instructed to do, and she ended up going back. She was afraid for her life and the lives of her loved ones, so she returned to her traffickers, and unfortunately, Larry Shin contacted her under a false name and lured her to her death. The fact that Aubriana was referred to as a prostitute and a hooker in the articles about her murder are completely wrong in reporting in that manner. She was not a prostitute and she was not a hooker. She was a 17-year-old victim of human trafficking. She was lured. She was groomed. She was brought into this whole thing by experienced traffickers, and she was controlled by way of threats, by way of force, and by way of coercion. And because she was only 17 years old, it doesn't even have to be proven that she was being coerced or threatened because she was still under the age of consent. No matter which way you slice it, it is not possible for Aubriana to have been a prostitute or a hooker as the media has labeled her. And those articles are still online. In fact, an article on MyNewsLA.com dated July 14, 2017, written by Ken Stone, has the headline that reads, Bloody Hooker Killer Gets Life. Teen Victim Slashed. 39 times. I kid you not, dreamers, this is exactly what the headline of the story says about Aubriana. I will post a link to this article in the show notes, but the article read, a 39-year-old man was sentenced Friday to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the stabbing murder of a teenage prostitute who had ripped him off for about $20,000 in front of an upscale Yorba Linda home. Larry Sushin was convicted on June 1st of first-degree murder with special circumstances of lying in wait. Pretending to be someone else, Shin had arranged to have the 17-year-old victim, Aubriana Shade Parks, stay with him for a week for $3,000 beginning February 4th, 2014. The meeting point was Merkwood Run and Live Oak Lane, although Shin lived about a mile and a half with his parents at the time. Shin lied to Parks that his wife was out of town and that he needed to sneak her into the house through the garage. The final text exchange between Aubriana and Shin was around 5 a.m. A bicyclist called 911 about 40 minutes later to report seeing the victim's body. As pointed out in the End Human Trafficking podcast, when we label children like Aubriana as a prostitute or a hooker, it has a profoundly negative impact on how the community who are reading the news reports view her. 
When we say or hear the word prostitute, it implies that the person at the center of the story, in this case, Aubriana, it is automatically having us thinking of her as a criminal because being a prostitute is illegal, so it automatically categorizes Aubriana as a perpetrator. The optics of these kinds of stories are so very important because it will have an effect on how people like her are treated at every level of the justice system. And I would even go so far to say that even women who are over the age of 18, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 25-year-old, they are still very young and naive and can very much fall victim to the same types of threats and coercion and the media must take the time to know who they are talking about and to report to everyone who has fallen victim to trafficking accurately. Just that one slight change in words has so much influence on our perceptions. For example, take that article that I just read to you, Bloody Hooker Killer Gets Life in Prison. What does that have you visualizing? It doesn't even acknowledge Aubriana and her life at all in the headline. It acknowledges Larry Shin, her murderer, instead. He's the bloody hooker killer? Why do we even need to point out that she was bloodied? For the shock value? To grab your attention? The bloody hooker killer sounds like a really, really bad horror movie. What if we said instead, Murderer of child sex trafficking victim sentenced to life in prison. If you ask me, I find that headline to be much more shocking, but just not in the same ways as the bloody hooker killer headline. It takes away from the insinuation that Aubriana was the criminal, and it brings attention to the fact that anybody, even a young, college-bound teenager that enjoys cheerleading and playing softball, Even kids that aren't runaways, kids that aren't drug addicts, kids who are from loving families and are excelling at school can and do fall victim to human sex trafficking. And it's heartbreaking and appalling that journalists would write such things like this about children in order to bait people into clicking onto their articles. Aubriana is not a criminal. The men who exploited her the men who trafficked her, and the man who ultimately murdered her, they are the criminals, and the media will continue to exploit and demean Aubriana in death so long as those articles are accessible. The media more often than not will choose the terminology that will bring about more attention to their story, but at the same time, it also brings about a complete violation of a victim's dignity. With the media referring to Aubriana as a prostitute, it can and does cause us who read the articles to likely jump to the conclusion that she is an immoral person, that she's a bad person, and that she has little to no place in society, that she is less than, and all of that, all of it dehumanizes her. This child was trafficked, and once she came to be under the control of her trafficker, It was very difficult, it is very difficult to break free of that because of all the fear and intimidation that has been used against her in order to keep her from leaving or going back to her family. I cannot emphasize it enough that it does not matter one bit if Aubriana wanted to be listed on that escort website. She is not at an age where she can be held criminally responsible for that. 
Articles have also referred to Aubriana as a runaway. And when she is labeled as a runaway, it gives us the impression that she is a troubled child who refuses to listen to her parents. So she just up and ran off because she is defiant and that just simply isn't the case. In the past, when kids would go missing, a lot of times law enforcement would write the child off as having run away. They'll turn up somewhere. Thus, the urgency to find these children drops off significantly. Yes, Aubriana did walk out of the group home on her own, despite pleas from the staff for her to stay. They can't force anyone to stay. As I said earlier, she chose to not reach out to her family when she was placed in that group home, and I strongly believe that she kept her family out of it as much as possible because she was protecting them. Because we know how traffickers work in that they use a lot of threats and coercion in order to keep control of these young people that they're victimizing. And because of that, Aubriana did not want to contact them, nor did she want to go home. It was out of fear. She was protecting her family. Aubriana is their hero. In the ending human trafficking podcast, the hosts really question how Aubriana went from being a victim of trafficking to being a prostitute. Part of the reason for that is when the Orange County District Attorney's Office wrote their press release regarding Aubriana's murder, her status as a victim of human trafficking was not included in it. And not only is it imperative to address all victims under the age of 18 as having been trafficked, In Aubriana's case, her trafficker had been arrested and convicted of it, which is a very important component of her case because it affirms in no uncertain terms that she was absolutely the victim and the perpetrator is Marcellus Smith, and he was in state prison for a term of five years. So when the media reported on her case once Shin was convicted of her murder, the fact that she was trafficked was left out. So there is definitely a breakdown in communication when these press releases are sent out to the media and they are left to formulate the story any which way they see fit. And it usually ends up being a headline that serves as clickbait. One of the things we can do as readers of these articles is to leave a comment or send an email informing the journalist who put that article out that the language that they've used in describing victims is not only harmful, but it is completely inaccurate. The professional term used in cases such as Aubriana's is commercial sexual exploitation of children, the acronym being CSEC. And we really have to challenge ourselves in our daily lives to use the correct terminology every time we're talking about this. I know over the years that I've been challenged to change the terminology that I use in a variety of cases involving sensitive topics. And I do hear the word prostitute pretty regularly in podcasts in general. And you know, admittedly, it just doesn't jump out at me that the terminology needs to be changed when I do hear it. In addition to that, we do have to have an understanding that there is not a whole lot out there in terms of safe facilities for children that have been victims of sexual exploitation. The funding is hard to come by. And as long as there is this perception of these young people being viewed as child prostitutes, it takes away from the prioritization when it comes to allocating funds to help assist these young victims. 
and even those that are older, because a lot of times those people were lured into sex work at a young age. Not always, but many are. And there is less inclination to want to help because the perception is that these people are doing what they're doing because they choose to do it. And I am certain that nobody chooses, really chooses sex work as their preferred way to earn money. They've been lured and they become trapped. And if society continues to believe that this is the life that they chose, then there will always be the question, why help these people when they've chosen this? And the language and the labels perpetuate that perception. As many as 300,000 children are sex trafficked in the United States every year. In an article entitled The Public Perception of Modern Slavery Versus Reality, hit on a couple of good points that are important to understand. Sex trafficking is typically thought of by society in a way that may be both naive and harmful in that it enables real sex traffickers to work undetected because of these stereotypes out there regarding sex traffickers and sex workers, particularly how they've been historically portrayed in the media, in movies, and in television. The article says that if we are to successfully combat human trafficking, we must first begin to educate the public by raising awareness and training them to recognize the signs of trafficking. Our views of human trafficking are often informed by Hollywood and the media, but not by reality, what is actually happening. No matter what you may have seen in the movies, a trafficker is certainly not going to be some flamboyantly dressed man because they're trying to keep attention off of themselves. So they are almost always going to be looking like the average everyday person. And buyers, sex purchasers, they are not lonely, harmless men in need of companionship. There might be a level of loneliness, but if they are extracting sex from trafficking victims, then these men are not harmless. What they've done is put their needs and their desires to fulfill their own pleasures above the safety and well-being of their victims. They only care about themselves and they can be very, very dangerous. Traffickers, on the other hand, are extremely dangerous because they are individuals who have used deceit, threats, punishment, and torture to essentially kidnap and hold captive their victims in order to exploit them and their bodies for profit. Traffickers don't care about the mental and physical well-being of their victims because they treat them as easily disposable and replaceable. They are treated as a commodity. They are dehumanized and exploited, while the sex purchasers... They're going to pay to use these victims because they cannot get their pleasures fulfilled in any other way, which is not only dangerous, but oftentimes sadistic. Trafficking victims are exposed to harmful situations no matter who is victimizing them. There is always little to no concern for their well-being. And the average lifespan of a person after being sex trafficked is seven years. That's it. Seven years. Female trafficking victims account for the highest homicide rate of any set of women ever studied. And trafficking victims can be anybody from any walk of life. They come from wealthy families, they come from poor families, 
and they are of all ethnic backgrounds from all aspects of society. And in the United States, it is estimated that 1.6 million children run away from home or they're kicked out, and this makes them immediately vulnerable. And today, it's not always going to be meeting a young girl or a woman in an alleyway or on the streets of an undesirable neighborhood. Today, the commercial sex trade mainly takes place on the internet. While Aubriana was approached by Marcella Smith in person, she was groomed online and her image was posted on an escort website. It is so easy and accessible for garbage human beings like Larry Shin to shop around for a child to sexually abuse. Human trafficking is not an other person issue. It's an issue for all of us to concern ourselves with, especially when it comes to the young and most vulnerable among us. These children are a part of our community and they need to be protected. And these traffickers are so good at what they're doing. It's really up to all of us to recognize what's going on with our children and do everything that we can to prevent them from getting lured in. It's not Aubriana's family's fault that this happened to her. And actually, it sounds like they had no idea what she was doing on the internet or who she was communicating with. And it's heartbreaking to see these articles referring to their child as a hooker or a prostitute. Aubriana was so much more than that. But the media didn't care enough to talk about Aubriana being a lovely young woman with aspirations of going to college and becoming an attorney. It's simply not good enough for all of these journalists out there. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, my dreamers, sweet dreams.